You are listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about this show, as well as the other show I do, How to Stan, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com and subscribe to my newsletter at howtostan.substack.com. K-pop interviews, album reviews, and more. Subscribing is free, but if you want to continue to support my work, feel free to donate. Click the support the show button on the homepage at 17karatkpop.weebly.com. Hi everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. Tons of big K-pop news stories and updates to cover this week. So let's just dive right in. Category 1 of stories to cover, 17 updates. There is a new piece on Weavers called The Trade Secrets to 17's Performances. I couldn't help but notice a lot of parallels to my essay called The Artistry of Seventeen, howtostand.substack.com, shameless plug. But anyway, my thesis and this piece's thesis are rooted in the same message, which is that what makes Seventeen such an impressive next-level group is that it's not just that they are talented on multiple fronts, singing, dancing, rapping, etc., but that they also pay attention to all those fronts. They are so acutely aware, they have an artist's instinct, of knowing when a certain move, a certain change in a little, little detail can actually shape the whole outcome of a performance. How all those little tweaks and details that you pay attention to, if you give them sustained attention and don't overlook any detail, the result is masterful. For example, not just flexing your rapping for rapping's sake, but choosing to rap in a certain way for that specific song because it ties the other components together. And this piece was talking about the dance element of what Seventeen does. They dance in ways that are designed to keep the whole story cohesive and in alignment. They know how to use their dance moves to tie a whole performance together. And this skill was really broken down in this Weaver's piece, talking about how Seventeen has been using their performances to really tell a whole story and bring you in, making it interactive. I think my favorite quote from the whole piece is talking about, quote, solidifying the audience as a part of the story, unquote. They were referencing there how the ready-to-love choreography is very open and audience-facing, intentionally. They're inviting you to be a character in the story they are laying out. An interesting term was used in this piece called story showing, because they're not just storytelling. I will link to the full piece on my newsletter as always, but some tidbits and fun facts in that piece that I just thought were worth sharing. First of all, the piece points out how Esku says, I want to run for you in Ready to Love, and he runs off stage. But then, he comes back to perform anyone, and then he becomes front and center. The whole group actually conferenced about this and decided, yeah, it's unanimous. We think Esku is the person that was meant to be in the center. I just found that really interesting how they don't just try to tell a story song to song, but keep it smoothly transitioning so that it's all one big story and not separate little disjointed ones. When they were making the choreography for the debut song, Adore You, they shook up their dance moves actually after the initial performance of the song. So eventually then it became a lot more about, we're going to kind of imitate all the fun games we are singing about playing with our crush. Bowling, tug of war, soccer, just mimicking playing games and stuff. 
and that youthful energy was obviously very effectively conveyed in Adore You. They talked about Shining Diamond, how Woozy composed the song, Hoshi choreographed the whole thing, and actually, Shining Diamond was the song Woozy, Esku, and Vernon all teamed up to write before they officially debuted as Seventeen. While they were perfecting the live routine for Shining Diamond, Mingi was helping out by flickering the lights on and off while they performed the song to figure out what the right vibe was for it. The piece analyzes the Don't Wanna Cry choreography, talking about how the song came together after Woozy and Bumzu pulled an all-nighter. Esku has this lyric in the song about how you're walking this unfamiliar path, and the other members are meant to, based on their placement in the choreography, service streetlights of sorts, guiding him home. Hoshi was actually inspired by the morning look of the streetlights turning on. He had pulled an all-nighter as well, coming up with the choreography. Lastly, the piece looked at the falling flower choreography, which shows a lot of flowery imagery symbolically. It starts with Junhan sprouting up, and then the other petals, I guess you could say, bloom, and in other parts of the routine, they wither. It's just very cool how Next Level 17 tells stories through not just their music, but through their dance as well. Okay, now we have to talk about, obviously, the biggest Seventeen news in a long time. Their comeback date and details are here. Attica will be out October 22nd. And they seem to be going back to that darker concept they seem to go for near winter months. Like the Fear Era concept. So I guess it's a seasonal thing for them now. Not complaining. And now that I look back... Doesn't it feel like this year's Carrotland show had a spoiler for Attica? Because there were those dark backgrounds, the red and black backdrop for part of the latest live Carrotland show. Anyway, what does Attica mean, you ask? It comes from the word attack, like you're attacking all at once. In music, it indicates that the next part of your music should start immediately. No pause between segments. Just jump right into the next part of the song. Which is an interesting title considering, again, their cohesive story here, because we had semicolon, we had your choice about where you go next in your relationship being up to you. And now thematically, this feels like a perfect continuation. Okay, now that we have decided, we are ready to love and have opened ourselves up to that. Now let's just go. No more hesitation. Take my hand, let's run in this direction, full speed ahead now. Attica. The album, in just one day, surpassed 1.41 million pre-orders. They broke their previous record, Your Choice had 1.3 million pre-orders in day one. Really impressive, and really, really, obviously, super excited for this. Mostly I'll relegate my fangirling to when my mic is off. I'm sure you can imagine my reaction to their comeback news when I heard it. Moving on, The Late Late Show with James Corden has been in hot water this week. BTS spent a week in New York, as we talked about last week on the show. There you and special envoys, President Moon Jae-in, had a really sweet glowing interview alongside them. And they really delivered another hopeful message to the youth, their third speech at the UN. Second time they delivered that speech in person. The Late Late Show, as all the late night talk shows do, has a monologue where they make jokes about the news of the day. 
And because this event was so high profile and on the radar, naturally he made a joke about it. He joked saying, quote, historic moment, it actually marks the first time 15-year-old girls everywhere found themselves wishing that they were Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. Now, ARMY was very upset by his joke about implying that all BTS fans are 15-year-old girls. There are some similarly patronizing jokes made by a ton of others, too. He seemed to really be the face of where ARMY's anger is targeted this week, but there were a lot of publications and shows that did tasteless jokes about this. It was just so goofy and funny and odd to people to see BTS at the UN. Look, if it was like, I don't know, Puddles the Clown at the UN, of course that would be funny and weird. But BTS are an artist who have been very invested in climate initiatives, equality initiatives, justice initiatives. They've been very philanthropic throughout their career, and very vocal about the serious social issues they care about. So seeing them be politically active in this way is not an absurd, funny situation, if you are a fan of them and have been following their career all along. This is par for the course for them. But apparently, a lot of Western media outlets found this hilarious. This boy band is at the UN. This band that teenage girls love only is being taken seriously. Lots of patronizing jokes. ARMY did not mess around. The Late Late Show's audience ranking online was 4.2 out of 5 stars. Pretty good. Very quickly, that dropped to 2.6 stars. And as of recording time, it's at 1.2 stars. Never underestimate a force like the ARMY online to team up and get stuff done. Which is actually quite symbolic of what effective political organizing looks like too. Which makes this whole thing more ironic. I won't spend too much time on my usual soapbox rant because I have before on this show again and again. Check out the episodes called The Art of the K-Pop Music Video, How to Stand Boy Bands, Big Hit the Road, several other episodes where I dive into the long history of teenage girls actually being a huge, powerful, effective force, changing pop culture, utilizing shows like TRL to uplift and give a platform to our faves. And yet, despite the power of the purse that teenagers have, especially since the 90s, and the ability to truly have such a maybe individually small, but collectively big impact on media, the economy, based on where allowances are spent, what's popular, what's being talked about, that's huge and exciting. And so that's why it's always been a little odd to me to hear people use while your fan base is teenage girls as the punchline of a joke in the first place. Like their interests aren't valid or meaningful. You know, I also talk about this in my How to Stand episode called Fandom Talk with Zoe Fraud Blanar. In that interview, I talk about the history of fandom and how it's always been this gendered thing The term hysteria was coined to describe women who were extra emotional. I've talked before on the show about this extensive history of female fans being an intimidatingly powerful force, shifting the pop culture tides. Yet, no level of impact seems to grant them the legitimacy and validity that I think they deserve. So that is one layer to this is the joke about boy bands being nothing to take seriously in any setting. Because you're implying that teenage girls will just 
grew out of a phase of liking them and transitory interests somehow equate to a lack of true substantive interest in them. Like your deep investment in a group cannot happen when you're as emotionally unstable as you are as a teenager. It's a very weird illogic there. But the other layer here is the frustration with the BTS fandom specifically being brushed aside as teenage girls, which has happened time and time again that I've gone off about previously on the show. Because as I've said countless times before, K-pop is truly so special for how diverse the fandom is, for how many people truly just love it, for how diverse KCON is and other K-pop events. The crowds, every sexual identity, gender, race, religion, birthplace, type of family, type of company they bring to the show. It's such a cool variety at K-pop concerts. Showing how music is this beautiful, uniting, universal language. So teenage girls, I don't even know if they're a disproportionate amount of the attendees, honestly at least for BTS shows, because the crowd is so varied. I would think that each demographic represented at a K-pop event, probably because there are so many other demographics to split up on the pie chart that each one actually, on their own, makes up a small percentage. So this joke is just riddled in annoying stereotypes about both the nature of fandoms and what the public is interested in, what they take seriously. I think the reason this comment stood out to people and really became the face of the backlash this week, despite all the other media outlets having similar jokes too, I think James Corden's comment hit a particular nerve because of a couple things. One is because he has been so nice to them in the past that I think it was kind of a, a shock to us. That even he, one of the few media guys out there who talks about BTS with true appreciation and respect and just seems to truly have a fun friendship with them when they're on the show, on carpool karaoke, etc. That it was extra, it felt like an extra betrayal to have him belittle us in this way. That's why his comments hurt extra hard, I think. And I also think it was just kind of one of those straw that broke the camel's back moments where we're just so tired and fed up with these tasteless jokes that his comment on its own may not seem like a huge deal, whatever, roll your eyes and move on, but it just feels like our anger at these types of derivative belittling comments, we were just, we just spilled over with our anger now. It was kind of just the poke that really set us off, I guess. It was just an I've had enough final straw moment. So that's why it is such a big deal, I think, because it's just a repeated pattern, and it's a tired go-to joke, and I just think people need to learn to better respect fandoms and what they do. If anything, I think this experience is a great time for people to learn, to really stop and appreciate and be in awe of the power of fandoms to mobilize, like they did to tank his show ratings. If that doesn't show how much you shouldn't underestimate the lasting passion of fandoms with members of all ages, then I don't know what would. Speaking of slamming television, China's censorship continues. As we talked about at length on previous Headline Roundup episodes, China's really been cracking down, more than usual even, on the entertainment sector trying to clean up its image after a series of scandals done by notable Chinese celebrities. 
And now, a new notice by the National Radio and Television Administration says that cartoons now need to be upholders of, quote, truth, goodness, and beauty. It's super vague. So it doesn't really ban cartoons. That seems to be what some media headlines imply. But I think it's just a deterrence thing. The fact that state media has sent out this memo warning people that certain cartoon characters that don't uphold truth, goodness, and beauty are no longer going to fly is meant to leave producers paranoid and staying away by choice from taking on certain roles. This reminds me of back in 2013. Well, technically, he started being censored in China in 2018, but the comparison started in 2013 when President Xi Jinping started being compared to Winnie the Pooh, especially in images of him walking alongside Obama. They were compared to Pooh and Tigger, and he was so annoyed by that that Winnie the Pooh started being censored. Then when that new Pooh movie came out, it was banned in China in 2019. And there's no chance that character comes back anytime soon, because obviously he still has a chip on his shoulder about this, and he actually got rid of the six-year term limit in China. Long story short, so he is here to stay, and as long as he's in power, I don't think this grudge is going away. But anyway, this is yet another example of a media crackdown against specific entertainment deemed to cross a line. And that line is continuing to be very, very vague. Let's cover one more disappointing news story and then get to the good stuff. On September 28th, a Korean news agency reported that Luna's company Blackberry Creative is in even more financial trouble than usual. We've talked about this a lot on the show before, their history of legal woes. But long story short, it's a very small company, which has, maybe they've grown, but last I reported it was about 15 full-time staff members. Very small company. And so, as popular and sustainable as Luna has been, their money still only extends so far, and not far at all, compared to a lot of other companies. BlackBerry has been sued before, They've outsourced other companies to work with and have failed to pay them back. Some outsourced staff have still been working for them for free the past few months out of just a sense of obligation to fulfill their commitments to this company. But that is obviously not sustainable. And it's starting to show. The bills are stacking up. There's no tour revenue coming in because of the pandemic. Fans noticed Luna's new Japanese song, Hula Hoop, did not get promo really no official music video, all signs point to mounting issues. So fans have tried to trend Save Luna on social media and even put together some funding for them. Fans tried to do this for Eyes One and that failed to work, but I wouldn't point to that as a sign it won't work this time because every fandom is different and not to discount the power of any fandom, but Luna's fans, the Orbits, we've been around for longer and have more intense devotion, I guess. We didn't just become fans of a group for a year, knowing they would probably only last the extent of a year-long contract like Eyes One. For Luna, we've had this forever feeling, like they'll forever be with us, very emotionally invested in their story in a different way, I think. And so I wouldn't lose hope yet that that could help, but I just don't see also any amount of crowdfunding being enough given the hole they're in right now. And so I'm very nervous and concerned about this, frankly, but I definitely think compared to a lot of girl groups, 
and just underdog groups from smaller companies in general. If there's any group that should get and could get a lifeline, a saving grace, a big funding boost, a new contract, some big special savior deal, it's Luna. So I wonder if SM Entertainment or maybe Hybe would save the company, buy them out of their other contract, and sign them. I just feel like another company could swoop in here and save the day, either by signing Luna themselves or bailing out this company. I really, really just want the best for this company and feel really bad for them. Right now it's a ton of speculation, so worry, but don't panic. I'll keep you posted. Before getting to the miscellaneous headline roundup, now that I've listened to NCT 127's new album sticker a bajillion more times, there are so many more connections that I've caught to their past works that I want to point out. That's one of the magical things about their work is that you revisit it and you notice new things in the songs every time. That definitely happened to me this time. So some things worth noting if you didn't catch them already. There are a ton of references to their previous songs, so these are just a handful. The song Dreamer seems to give a nod to Elevator, which interestingly was the debut track video in a series of track videos for that Neozone album release. But it was the last song on the album, so it was the first preview video for that comeback, but the last song on the album. And now this album basically picked up where that left off, because Dreamer was one of the first track videos this time, and the song on the track list is once again one of the last songs. And Dreamer nods to Elevator. Bring the Noise references Game Over, which is a common refrain from them now. The Breaking the Limits reference. There are a couple of those in other songs as well, reminding me of Limitless. In Far, they say, we're not the same, just like they did it in Regular. Lemonade references both Cherry Bomb and Regular. And here's some really good, promising, exciting news. Doyen said at the press conference for this album, quote, although we can't reveal the dates, we're down to holding one as soon as the situation gets better, unquote. He was asked about a potential concert tour for this album. Although we can't reveal the dates, we're down to holding one as soon as possible. Is it just me over-reading this as always? Or is Doyen hinting that they already have the dates mapped out? Are we getting a 2022 sticker tour? Or am I just really letting my daydreams get the best of me? I don't know, there's something about the way he said it that left me very hopeful. And they already kind of had tour stops and everything mapped out that got canceled in 2020, so just shifting those over to 2022 shouldn't take too long, right? Fingers crossed. This is a good time to pivot then to your miscellaneous rapid-fire headlines, because BTS, after two long years without them, are going to perform live again. They have a series of shows coming up in person in Los Angeles. Saturday and Sunday, November 27th and 28th, and Wednesday and Thursday, December 1st and 2nd. Pre-sale registration closes October 2nd at 6 p.m. Pacific time, although there are extra bonus pre-sale options for earlier access if you are a Weavers Global Fan Club member or if you got tickets for the Map of the Soul tour that was canceled. You can also get earlier access. More information at Ticketmaster and Live Nation. If they feel like they can safely have a show in L.A., Fingers crossed that sentiment is the same for other parts of the USA. 
maybe a show in Chicago around Christmas time, please and thank you. 100% has disbanded. A statement published September 23rd revealed that the members' contracts expire October 9th, 2021, and none of them decided to renew them. They've actually lasted since 2012, so this is beyond what anyone expected. September 30th to October 2nd this year, MooCon is going virtual. A music conference that will be airing on SBS and MTV Asia, but you could also just watch through the KOCCA music channel on YouTube. Featuring appearances by ATs, Everglow, Wanho, DKB, Kingdom, I could go on and on. In more entertainment news, 1OK Rock has a new documentary coming to Netflix. You can watch the show called Flip a Coin. It will be out worldwide October 21st, and it covers both their audienceless livestream show and the three months of prep that led up to that big event. BM from Card has been walking in his first fashion week in Milan, no less. Meanwhile, Minghyun from New East got to attend Montclair livestream show. And NCT's Jaehyun became the first ever celebrity that Prado let live stream their runway show on Instagram. In other historic NCT news, NCT 127 is set to be the first idol group to ever host SNL Korea, the rebooted edition. They will get to host an upcoming episode available via the app Coupain Play. More entertainment to look forward to? This Friday, October 1st, TWICE will debut their first all-English single on Jimmy Fallon show. BTS kicked off the Global Citizen Fest 24-hour live stream with a virtual performance of Permission to Dance. The newest Music Bank MCs are officially Jane Wanyun and Sunhoon from N-Hyphen. Blackpink will appear during YouTube's Dear Earth special, airing October 23rd. The girl group Hot Issue has officially chosen their fandom name, Shore, short for Surely Yours. Unjun from Tiara just joined Management KOO, a company focused on actors. Big congrats to Bobby, whose baby boy has arrived. And big congrats to Taeyang, because he now has a baby on the way. COVID updates, Unquain from B2B. He did test negative, but he is self-quarantining out of an abundance of caution as he is a close contact of someone who tested positive. The latest sticker, video, and album stats. As of recording time, the video has over 50 million views. The album debuted at number 3 on the Billboard 200 Albums chart. It also allowed NCT 127 to, for the first time, enter Australia's Arias chart at number 16, and for the first time enter the UK's Top 40 Albums chart. And now, NCT 127 is the fastest SM Entertainment artist to sell 2 million album copies. It took all of one week. Meanwhile, Taeyeon's song Lawn Flight just surpassed 20 million SoundCloud streams. Congrats to BTS's RM, his solo discography cumulatively across YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud has surpassed 1 billion streams. And L, J-pop icon, just surpassed 5 million cumulative YouTube views. Key's new album Bad Love topped iTunes in 32 countries. Itzy's new album Crazy in Love topped iTunes in 15 regions, reaching 200 million views is Lisa's La Lisa. 
1.4 billion views on Blackpink's Kill This Love, and 1.7 billion views on Blackpink's Do 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 Do, the first K-pop music video, period, ever, in history, to reach that. BTS's song Butter has officially been certified double platinum in the USA, and N-Hyphen's upcoming new album has already surpassed 600,000 stock pre-orders, their previous record being 400,000. That is your news roundup for the day. Stay tuned because shortly I will be releasing the next episode of RM's Rex as well as my best of September roundup. So stay tuned for all of that. But real quick, your action item of the day is to check out my book recommendation. Please check out and remember the struggles healthcare workers are dealing with mentally and physically being exhausted by this pandemic still. And you can learn about this extremely challenging time for them in the book Life on the Line by Emma Goldberg. Quote, the gripping account of six young doctors enlisted to fight COVID-19. In March 2020, soon-to-be graduate medical students in New York City were nervously awaiting match day when they would learn where they would begin their residencies. Only a week later, these young physicians learned that they would be sent to the front lines of the desperate battle to save lives as the coronavirus plunged the city into crisis. Taking the Hippocratic Oath via Zoom, these new doctors were sent into iconic New York hospitals. New York Times journalist Emma Goldberg offers an up-close portrait of six bright young, inexperienced health professionals, each of whom defies a stereotype about who gets to don a doctor's white coat. Goldberg illuminates how the pandemic redefines what it means for them to undergo this trial by fire as caregivers, colleagues, classmates, friends, romantic partners, and concerned family members. Woven together from in-depth interviews with the doctors, their notes, and Goldberg's own extensive reporting, this page-turning narrative is an unforgettable depiction of a crisis unfolding in real time in a timeless and unique chronicle of the rite of passage of young doctors, unquote. Thank you all for listening to today's episode as always, and I will talk to you all again super soon.